This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hey, Jim. You're most welcome for another edition of The Other Hand. Here we go again. Tons to talk about, uh, even more than usual. Uh, we're going to start close to home uh, and then broaden it out to what's going on in the rest of the world. We had some updated economic forecasts out of the Irish Department of Finance only yesterday. On the face of it, it looks like the Irish economy is booming, certainly on the basis of the GDP statistics. And I know that You've dug into them a wee bit, and the picture is a little bit more nuanced. Uh, my own take on that is, A, ask Jim Power, the expert, on what these numbers actually mean. Are they more apparent than real? And even if there is still a robust growth story for Ireland, this is the latter part of the discussion, does it risk being derailed by the number of crises that are going on around the world, not least in energy, but also something that's worrying me a lot in China? So, Jim, tell us a little bit about those numbers. Department of Finance in July published what it calls the Summer Economic Statement, which it's where it set out GDP and other macroeconomic projections out to 2025. And within that, it also included its projections for the fiscal parameters like the budget deficit, government debt levels, and so on, out to 2025. Yesterday, 12 days ahead of the budget, it updated the economic forecast piece of this. It didn't change the fiscal parameters because they will be changed on budget day when the various measures are introduced in the budget. But in terms of the revision to the growth forecasts, uh, a couple of things stand out. One was that there was a dramatic upward revision to GDP growth um, for 2021 this year. And that is really driven by 
the rapid economic recovery we've seen over the last two or three months, particularly consumer spending, which is now starting to be fueled by a declining savings rate, albeit marginally, but there was a bit of a decline in household savings in August. So that's funding a pretty helping fund, a pretty strong rebound in consumer spending. But anyway, GDP growth revised up from 8.8% to 15.6%. Pretty dramatic stuff. And obviously, as we've often discussed in this podcast, that comes with a health warning about the reliability of Irish GDP as a real measure of activity on the ground, given the activities of aircraft leasing, um, multinational balance sheet transactions in areas like intellectual property, contract manufacturing activities, and so on, stuff that does exaggerate GDP as a real measure. But even when you strip that out, the modified domestic demand forecast was increased up from 2.6% to 5.2%, so a doubling of the growth rate there. And that, as I say, reflects much stronger consumer spending. However, if you look at the forecast from 22 to 25 Um, They are broadly unchanged, you know, some up a little, some down a little. And in fact, for 2022, the revised numbers are slightly lower than they were in July. And I think that reflects the fact that um, a much stronger growth rate this year means that the base effect next year will not be as pronounced. Okay, so it's 2021. That is where the significant changes are made. Interestingly, Uh, The Minister for Finance and the Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform both said yesterday at the press conference and elsewhere that these economic projections would not change the stance of government on budget day. Um, And and basically, the stance of government is an additional one billion in expenditure measures on top of what has already been announced and 500 million in tax measures tax reduction measures okay so they say they're not going to change those parameters despite the fact that growth um, this year is much stronger than anticipated Um, i actually think that is a sensible perspective uh, because number one uh, this is 21 we're talking about when the economy is reopening so you're going to get this massive rebound in activity um, which will level off over the next couple of years anyway and secondly If you look at, and we discussed it on Wednesday, and we discuss it again today, what's happening in terms of the global economic outlook at the moment, a lot of dark clouds on the horizon. So I think the Minister of Finance is correct in saying that these growth revisions will not change the stance of budgetary policy. Yeah, two things immediately come to mind, both of which we've talked about, so let's not dwell on it. But first of all, what's the point of forecasts if in the space of a few weeks, because that's what we're talking about since July, numbers for growth can double. I mean, we're used to 0.1.2 being added, subtracted as growth forecasts evolve as new data comes in, but a doubling in weeks, it renders the original forecasts, as we've already said, completely useless. What's the point of these exercises if the numbers can move around by this much? Secondly, you mentioned a billion for expenditure and 500 for taxes, which in the context of lazy journalists writing hoo-ha budget headlines sounds like a lot of money but in the context of the Irish budget it's chump change isn't it it's absolutely meaningless yeah it's, it's chump change no, no doubt about it and we, we we have discussed this as well about the the budget it's just a political charade at this stage that the media love and the politicians love whether if you're in government uh, you can 
wax lyrical about what the government did in the budget. If you're in opposition, you can criticise what the government did or didn't do. But the reality is that these budget changes of this magnitude make very, very little difference to people live, people's lives. In the context of the forecasting piece you refer to, um, I can only say two words. I agree. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> it's always nice. If, if, if less entertaining for our audience, we, I think they prefer it when we're having a go at each other. Is there anything else happening in Ireland? Because one of the things that um, occurs to me, as I said earlier, in the context of, of these kinds of, of forecasts, that uh, A, they're not worth the paper they're written on, B, they can and probably will be derailed by events. And there are a lot of events right now. One, of course, uh, in all of our minds, is the building energy crisis. Now, I know we use the word, overuse the word crisis a lot these days, but I do think that um, we are at, at the, in the foothills of a full-blown global energy crisis. And, for example, I think uh, only this week, the Electricity Supply Board in Ireland has whacked up the price of gas and electricity to households. And this is just one small example, or perhaps a large example, of what we mean here. And there's, and there's more to come. Um, am I right? Did they put prices up? Chris, I called my brother in San Francisco last night, and he said to me that he was out on the roof of his house having listened to our podcast on Wednesday. Um, it, it made him feel so bad about everything that's happening in the global economy at the moment. And indeed, it does feel a little bit like that. Um, may you live in interesting times is an old Chinese proverb, and it's quite extraordinary what's happening at the moment in terms of energy prices, commodities generally. You know, I hope, he was, I hope he was up on the roof having a beer and not doing anything more dramatic than that. <laughs> I, I certainly hope so. Knowing him, I presume he was. But um, it, it does, you know, it, it does show that the, the whole global thing is incredibly volatile, uncertain. Um, and up in the air at the moment. But bringing it closer to home, obviously what happens to the external environment will have a significant impact here in a whole load of different ways. Uh, today, we saw Electric Ireland announce an increase from the 1st of November of 9.3% in electricity prices. That will add €9 Euro per month to the average electricity bill, a 7% increase in gas prices, which will add... €4.85 per month to um, gas bills. So we're really looking at, for the average gas bill, today's move, which has come on top of a number of other moves over the last few months, nearly every week now we're getting price increases from the various energy suppliers. Uh, but, you know, you're, you're talking about an extra €208 Euro per year, but coming on top of all of the other stuff, um, it's incredible. So the cost of living increasing significantly here. And based on our analysis of what's happening in energy markets, it is, and also if we're heading into uh, as cold a winter as is being predicted in many parts of the world, you'd have to think that um, energy prices can only go in one direction. And that will feed into consumer spending. It will take money out of people's pockets and it is bound to dampen economic activity. And um, you'd suspect that if the Department of Finance turns around in another six weeks or so and revises its forecast again, that for 22 onwards, it'll probably be re revised in a downward direction, reflecting what's happening at the global level. Yeah, so we've we got to be careful, um, consistent with what both of us say about the, the um, efficacy or the point of, or there isn't one of doing forecasting, energy prices would 
would fall under that heading. And um, the the expert opinion, such as I can establish it, is that uh, gas prices won't stay at these levels and that analysts seem reasonably confident that even with that cold winter, that some sense of normality will be restored to the gas market. Well, Chris, Chris, if I may say that... Mm. um, my knowledge would be that a few months ago they weren't predicting this sort of spike in gas prices either. Absolutely not. The technical reason why they they think that gas prices have to fall is that they can work out what the equivalent oil price would be consistent with the gas price where it is. The two things have a rough equivalence. And for the current gas price to make sense, oil would have to be about $180 a barrel rather than the $80 a barrel that it is today. And that's a huge difference. And that that represents an arbitrage opportunity in these energy markets. It all gets very technical. Of course, they conclude that that means that the gas price must go down. I wonder if the other conclusion is equally possible, which is that the oil price might go up to meet it. But anyway, energy prices are always highly uncertain, very difficult, next to impossible to forecast. But what we can say is that if energy prices stay high, certainly if they go higher, this point that we're at, which is in the foothills, as I say, of a global energy crisis, we're going to start climbing that particular mountain and it's not going to be pretty. And what it will do amongst many things, not just push up the cost of living, it will take a bite out of global economic growth. I'm old enough to remember what happened in 1973 and 1979 when we had two massive energy price shocks back then that both generated global recession. We're not saying that's going to happen now. Uh, again, that would be a forecast, but I am starting to get worried that growth is going to take a hit from what we've already seen. And if it is sustained or indeed if it gets worse, that growth is going to suffer even more. And one of the interesting things about that is that growth everywhere you look at the moment right now today, as we begin the fourth quarter from China to Europe in particular, um, we've got some emerging evidence that things are already slowing down. Is that right, Jim? Yeah, it is. Um, today, we had the publication of the Purchasing Managers Index for Manufacturing. And basically, the Purchasing Managers Index for listeners is a survey of manufacturing countries conducted country by country, where they are asked a whole load of questions about business conditions, um, existing and future. And all of the answers are compiled into an index. And it's a diffusion index meeting that if the reading is over 50, more companies are expecting expansion than contraction. If the reading is below 50, it means more companies are expecting contraction rather than expansion. So what we saw um, from the raft of numbers today in the United Kingdom and across Europe is that all of the personally managed indices for manufacturing are still comfortably above 50. So they, they we're still in expansionary mode but it is decelerating. Um, for example, the euro area won't jump from 61.4 to 58.6. Um, and I won't go through every other country, but suffice to say, every other country in Europe and indeed in the United Kingdom showing similar declines. So, yeah, the, the UK numbers were particularly bad when, when you combine it with some stuff that was out from a number of organisations doing their own different surveys. The Institute of Directors did a a survey of directors' expectations for the economy, and they were very weak indeed. So um, the UK economy has slowed down a lot on the basis of this evidence, as has the rest of Europe. But as we know, so has China. Um, Their PMIs were out a little bit while ago, and they 
coupled with a whole bunch of evidence, other evidence suggests that China is slowing down, which in and of itself is a concern. The Chinese economy is so important for world economic outlook um, at the best of times. And these are not the best of times. China, I must say, Jim, worries me a lot at the moment, not least because of what it's doing, but because of emerging evidence from scholars who've dug deep into the history of the Chinese economy in recent years and what that history properly interpreted means for the future. And the focus of that research has been on the Chinese property market, particularly residential property, particularly apartment building, which is what they do more of than anything else. And looking at the data that these guys have uncovered, it seems that the overbuilding of property in China was actually much worse than even took place in Ireland and Spain during our property bubbles. And the 10% plus growth rates in the Chinese economy that we got used to for years and years and years were in fact inflated by building what in, in, in our language would be ghost estates, some of which have been spectacularly and very visibly knocked down in recent weeks. And an awful lot of these apartments that they've built apparently are never going to be occupied. Now, of course, this is property development on the, the classic speculative lines. Uh, developers have built properties before they've been sold. So they've borrowed a lot of money. So the equivalent of all those Irish property developers that went bust is this company called Evergrande in China, which um, is looks like it can be managed reasonably well. So I do think their debt crisis as a result of this speculation stands a chance of being better managed than our Lehman moment. But what it means is that Chinese economic growth over the past was not what it seemed. Because if you're building empty apartments, you're not building of any, anything of any real economic value. And it looks like as much as 30% of Chinese economic growth could have been property related, and a big chunk of which was just simply not of any economic value. And it, it seems that this crackdown on companies like Evergrande is a recognition by the Chinese authorities that this just can't continue. They can't keep inflating this bubble. The worse it gets, the harder it is going to be managed when eventually it deflates. And it looks like they're starting to deflate it now. So whatever the, the, the financial implications of what the Chinese are doing with their property developers, what it means for economic growth, this thing that's so important for the world economy going forward, is that they're not going to be building nearly as much as they did in the past. Quite rightly, because they don't need it, but it does mean that Chinese growth is going to be less. So that impetus to the world economy is going to be much less than it was. And I think that is huge. So when you add up the energy crisis with a Chinese growth issue going forward, I think that you've got quite a building problem for finance ministers and managers of the economy everywhere. And I must say that if I was Pascal Donoghue right now, I'd be building contingency plans, only contingency plans, for what I would do if, A, my growth forecasts turn out to be completely and utterly wrong. And more specifically, what I'd do is if over the next year or two, we actually get a global downturn, perhaps even a global recession on the back of, A, the energy crisis, combining with what's going on in China. So I must confess that I'm quite worried about the growth outlook, and I would not be basing a budget on robust economic assumptions. Yeah, Chris, one of the things that um, I certainly learned in the run-up 2007-2008, albeit in hindsight, that the quality of economic growth is much more important than the quantity. Uh, there's way too much focus on the level of GDP. There's a lot, too, way too little focus on the quality of that growth. 
and exactly what you describe in China, where by some estimates, property investment is now equivalent to about 30% of Chinese GDP. And depending on what you include, it's somewhere between 50 and 30%. They're big numbers, whatever way you look at it, and certainly make Ireland's property bubble um, sink into, um, look, look very small by comparison. So that, that there is definitely that issue. And as, as the world's second biggest economy, um, this sort of shock, and it's, it's estimated that the property investment is worth over 5 trillion in the Chinese economy, which is, you know, massive amounts of money. So China is seriously vulnerable as a result of this. And, and if China goes south, well, obviously it will have serious implications for the global economy. One of the, one of the things that, um, I, I, I guess this day week, we had a, an interesting podcast with Duncan Weldon, the economist journalist at the time, um, who was talking about the importance of economic history. And in the run up to the crash here, uh, Professor Morgan Kelly, UCD, you know, called the property market and banking very, very well, very accurately. And the thing that Professor Kelly had gone from is the fact that uh, he is an economic historian. And I think in the context of what's happening in China at the moment, the historical precedence would actually scare the living daylights out of you. The only caveat from my perspective there would be that we are talking about China. We are talking about a century planned economy. We are talking about a country where massive government intervention from the center can actually prevent these sorts of calamities from happening, much more so than in the sort of free market democracies that the rest of us live in. Yeah. And what are the consequences of what you're saying there, Jim, is if they successfully manage this transition, and I want to talk about what that might actually mean in a moment, but if they successfully manage this transition away from this, first of all, very investment-led economy, um, and that investment being far too dominated by property, rather than investing in productive capacity, making stuff uh, that people can consume rather than building houses that nobody will ever live in. If they can make that transition from that structure of the economy to something else and make that transition successfully, we're going to have a model of a centrally planned economy run by a, the Chinese Communist Party that they're going to be standing on rooftops, possibly different rooftops to the one your brother was standing on, proclaiming the success of their economic model relative to anything that we have here in the West. And it's going to be a very interesting political and cultural dynamic. But it's that transition I just wanted to spend a minute talking about, because what they want to do is move away from this very investment-led economy. It's not that they don't want to do any investment. They want to get it to be the right size for the economy, not, to be, not for the economy to be dominated by capital spending, by investment, and for what investment there is to be value-added investment rather than value-negative investment, which is what empty properties actually are. And for, for investment then to shrink, something else, if growth is to continue, must take up the slack. And what we all say is that what China has needed for years is a more consumption-led economy. And for consumer spending to become, as it is here in the West, anything between 60-70% of the economy. Um, it's nothing like that in China. And, and that would be not just a transition, it would be a transformation and it will be very interesting to see if that's what the Chinese now attempt to do and whether or not they are successful. Um, even if they are successful, ultimately, I, I don't see it not being accompanied by several rather large bumps in the road because I don't 
know in terms of my economic history if anybody's ever done this in this way before. So um, it's tricky. We don't have historical precedent for it. Uh, I wish them luck, um, but I do think it's going to be interesting. And I do think that we are likely to have one or two bumps, as I say, if not one or two accidents, but possibly even a Chinese recession or two along the way. I do think that this sort of concern is behind what's going on in financial markets at the moment. They're not just concerned with the Brexit nonsense that's going on in the UK, the supply shortages that are global and the energy price problem in particular. I do think that one of the many worries facing financial markets is this building, frankly, China crisis. Another use of that word. We're again only um, at the early stages of being able to use that word with lots of caveats associated with it. But it's certainly one that we're going to have to watch very closely going forward. Yeah, Chris, can I just ask you a question? Um, wh- what do you, th- looking at the surging commodity prices at the moment, um, there are two implications. One, the immediate one, is the upsurge in inflation. And indeed, we've seen today Eurozone inflation in September jumped 3.4%. Fastest, fastest in 13 years. Fast in 13 years, yeah, up from 3% in September. Mind you, those 13 years were um, dominated by deflationary concerns. So, you know, it's maybe not the most valid comparison to make, but Fair still, point. but still, it, it does represent a significant upsurge in inflation. Energy inflation is up from 154 to 17.4%. Uh, but the core rate of inflation, if you exclude energy, food, alcohol, has gone from 1.6 to 1.9%, I guess dangerously close to the 2% target that the ECB um, now tries to achieve. So that's one implication, the immediate inflationary pressures. The other implication is how this sort of inflation could derail economic activity. In other words, inflation turns into a deflationary phenomenon. So how do you think that actually feeds through? Are you more worried about inflation or growth at the moment? Well, I'm worried about both, to be honest, because the inflation, as we've talked about many, many times, was forecast, but not least by the central banks who will ultimately decide what inflation rate we have. It was forecast to be temporary, and it's already proved to be a lot less temporary than they thought. Jerome Powell Chairman of the Federal Reserve has said as much and other central bankers have hinted at that as well. The the reason why you get worried about inflation is because of the bites that it takes out of real incomes. It represents, if it's energy price inflation, it represents a transfer of our income to energy producers. So the, the gas companies and countries like Russia and Qatar get at more of our incomes. So we have less to spend on other things. So that will take a bite out of our domestic growth. We're all poorer as a result of higher energy prices. Companies will be faced with higher input costs because energy is required for all sorts of things, as we know. So that will just lead to knock-on effects and we get the the danger of a, a price spiral. The thing to watch will be wages. If wages start to pick up, and I saw a headline only recently saying that workers in Germany are going on strike uh, for higher pay to compensate them for inflation. And that's not a headline that we've seen, I think, for almost a generation, Jim. So wages are going to be needed to be watched very, very carefully. Now, there is a technical point here, which I'm reluctant to get into because it is very geeky, very technical. But just let me spend 30 seconds on it. The conventional worry about economic growth that flows from all of that inflation stuff is that what happens will be central banks will put interest rates up 
and kill the economy. One of the things that we know about economics is that things often happen in ways that you don't expect. And the expectation at the moment is that higher interest rates will be the thing that will be ultimately deployed should this inflation prove to be a lot less temporary than it's proved to be already. I have a worry about that. I think if that's the story, higher interest rates are going to kill us all, economically speaking. But my real deep-seated worry is this technical point that I'm worried about. I think that it may not have the effect that people think it's going to have. Because the reason why interest rates have been able to control the business cycle in recent years is because fiscal policy has played second fiddle to monetary policy. And the, the, the people who govern our spending and taxation decisions have played ball with what the central banks are doing. They're not playing ball at the moment. Budget deficits are still incredibly high, uh, not shrinking hardly anywhere. And if you think that putting interest rates up is going to be the solution to your problems because the fiscal authorities are going to play ball, it's not like the last 30 or 40 years. We've had monetary dominance and fiscal policy as a residual. We've now got fiscal dominance. And I think it could get very, very messy from a, a monetary fiscal policy mixed point of view. And that worries me a lot. That's a very geeky technical point. We won't explore it any more here, but I think it's worth bearing in mind going forward. It might be something that we come back to. What are the fiscal authorities going to do as and when the monetary authorities stop buying all their bonds? That's one of the key questions that arises from that. Pascal Donoghue can borrow all this money that he's planning to now and in the future. Whether he tweaks it by a billion or two here doesn't matter. But he can do this because he knows the ECB are going to be buying all the bonds that he wants to issue. What happens if that changes? And I think that's something that we really need to know. He's not going to say anything about that, but I think that would be incredibly important. Are you rubbishing modern monetary theory at this stage? Absolutely. Absolutely. I would go back to something that was written, oh gosh, 30, maybe more years ago, by um, a Nobel Prize winning economist, Tom Sargent, and a very, very unheralded monetary economist called Neil Wallace, who wrote a paper called Some Unpleasant Monetarist Arithmetic that really addressed all of this uh, stuff. So it's, this is not new, these, these concerns that I have, but that sort of very technical monetary analysis of how monetary and policy, fiscal policy interact with each other has been neglected by macroeconomists in recent years because of the way things have gone. And I think we've neglected it at our peril. So the way in which monetary and fiscal policy react going forward, I think is going to be interesting. I do think mon modern monetary theory is a load of old tosh, it, 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 <laughs> to use a technical expression. Jim, we've not got a lot of time left, but I just wanted to talk just a little bit about the UK, what's going on here, all things Brexit, petrol price, pre petrol shortages uh, and, and the rest, and start with observing that the leader, or perhaps one of the leaders of the Leave campaign was a chap called Nigel Farage, who said during the campaign that if Brexit led to a poor economic outcome, he would leave the country. So I put it up to journalists everywhere now to put that question, that point back to him, because we learned this week that Mr. Farage, in his search for petrol, has had a crash with a lorry. And, quote, I, I tried seven garages this morning, all closed, and I couldn't find any petrol. And then a lorry ran into me on a, a roundabout. Van hit him, actually. Va a van, sorry. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder if the van was big enough that it needed an HDV licensed driver, <laughs> uh, but perhaps not. Depends on the size of the van, of course. So if that's not making your life worse, I don't know what is. So I think that would be very interesting. The, the situation here in the UK is, is, is pretty fraught. And the, the slightly less tongue-in-cheek, we've had uh, this week 
the first, the very first official admission that things are tough as a result of Brexit. Uh, of course, up till now, everything has been anything but Brexit. All of the things that are going on, petrol shortages, uh, shortages of everything, particularly foodstuff related, we've listed those before, has been described by officialdom as to do with anything but Brexit. Today, Kwasi Kwarteng, a minister in Boris Johnson's government, said, and he used very economics language, actually. He said, what we have is that we're, we're transitioning from one equilibrium to another. And the, the equilibrium that we had before was a low-wage, low-productivity economy. And we're now going through the transition to the high-wage, high-productivity economy promised by Brexit and our economic policies. And all transitions are difficult. So it's the first admission that things are changing dramatically. It's the first admission that those changes are bringing economic difficulties. And casting it in the, that economic language means that he almost certainly has been briefed by a junior economist in his department who learnt somewhere along the line the, the tools and techniques and tricks to do with, you'll remember this phrase, Jim, partial equilibrium analysis. It's, it's, it's a hell of an economic forecast to A, say that uh, the transition will be manageable, will be finite and won't be that long and won't be that difficult and that the new equilibrium are the sunny uplands. That's, that's one thing. The tran transitions can last a very long time, longer than governments, actually. That's one thing. It's, it's very simplistic economic analysis. It's really first-year textbook economic analysis that doesn't have a lot of application in the real world, so it's very dodgy to use. That's why I suspect he's been briefed by a very junior economist who's fresh out of high school, I suspect not even university. And the other thing is the evidence that Britain was this low-wage, low-productivity economy because it was a member of the EU is next to non-existent. Yes, it was a low-wage, low-productivity economy, but the, the evidence for um, that being as a result of immigration is very thin on the ground. It has a kind of intuitive appeal to a certain type of individual, to a certain politician, but, you know, if Britain's wages were so low in recent years while, mem while a member of the EU, why did all these workers want to come here from the EU? There are all sorts of questions that one might ask, both of a technical nature and a non-technical nature. So I wish them luck with their, with their project to transition the UK to the high productivity, high wage economy. I suspect every economy in the world would like to affect that transition. I know lots of e economic policymakers have tried. The low productivity thing has been a global phenomenon, not just a British one. And it has very, very complex and not very well understood drivers. So they appear to be, they're shooting for the holy grail. They're shooting for something at the same time as essentially making it up as they go along. It's all very well saying you have this objective, but with absolutely no idea how you're going to get there. There are no policies in place apart from restricting immigration to achieve this transition. If you think you're going to get this transition just as a result of restricting immigration, good luck with that. I do not think that they will succeed, but that runs the risk of being an economic forecast. So things are changing very rapidly here in Britain. I think the government is on the defensive economically and therefore politically. And sooner or later, one thinks that they must pay a political price for all of this incompetence and, of course, sleaze that they are involved in. 
I don't know what it's like looking at Britain from a distance, Jim, but do you get the sense that it is as chaotic as I am asserting? Yeah, I do. Uh, I, on the other hand, I saw you know the latest GDP numbers suggesting that the UK economy is on the brink of reattaining pre-pandemic levels. So the, the official statistics, I think, are still generally reasonably upbeat. Uh, they're not indicative or suggestive of an economy in serious turmoil. But everything we see from this side of the water certainly points towards total chaos, political and economic and business chaos. You know, when you see pro-Brexiteers coming out calling for uh, temporary visas for EU workers to come in, uh, when you see Tim Witherspoon running out of beer, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's utter chaos. It seems to be like a circus. And um, there is a sense of sort of schadenfreude on this side of the water. I definitely get that impression, but I would warn anyone on this side of the water not to be complacent about this, because when you get this sort of chaos in the UK, it is bound to reverberate here. I guess most of us are just one step away from chaos anyway, at the best of times. But uh, certainly uh, you you get the very strong impression that uh, Brexit is turning out to be every bit the unmitigated disaster that many people predicted it would be. And uh, the, the really interesting thing will be what political price would be paid for this. That's the key question, Jim. Well, I I hope your brother wasn't still on the roof when he was listening to this one, because, or at least if he did, he had another beer to hand. But I think we should call it there. No doubt all of these issues we will return to. So good talking again, Jim, and see you next time. Yeah, Chris, um, have a good weekend. Um, I'm travelling to London in the morning to um, go to see QPR and Preston with my son. Um, It's something you may not know about me, but... uh, is that punishment for some I, uh, earlier that, earlier crime? That is a punishment, and that will certainly um, send my Leeds United sporting brother out onto the roof again. See you, Chris. <laughs> See you, Jim. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power, on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www cjpeconomics.substack.com You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.